last October, my husband and I handed over our beloved unborn son into the arms of Jesus halfway through the pregnancy. It was devastating. I was imagining myself growing up having six kids, so the onslaught of issues we've had having children has been a heartbreaking experience. Even getting pregnant this time was a gift, a surprise, a miracle um, on the little family that we currently have and waited a long time for. We have a two-year-old daughter who my family refers to as the miracle baby. She came after 17 years of marriage. She's a long-awaited gift and the hope of our hearts. So you can imagine how difficult losing this baby is. My heart breaks thinking of him, how he would change our lives, how he would make us laugh, what he would look like. And something inside me dies every time I see a little baby because at this point in my life, I know I should be holding one. And some of you know exactly how this feels. In my grief, I hit the wall. And in truth, I have been at the wall ever since. You'll hear us talking about the wall at Orchard. It's a place in our spiritual journey that we get stuck. The wall's impassable. impassable. Questions arise, doubts return, old wounds reopen and surface. And it's a miserable place to be. The wall represents our will, meaning God's will face to face. And there's thousands of ways to hit the wall. So however you get here, we all have to do the same thing. We have to decide if we are willing to surrender and let God direct our lives. Am I going to be in charge? Is God going to be in charge? If not, we stay at the wall a while. There's no way to scale it, circumvent it, burrow under it, climb over it. The only way through the wall or around it is to actually go through it. And this takes God's help and direction. But amazingly, the result is a deeper friendship with God, and our souls find healing in the process, which is what we desperately need. So how do we get through the wall? Some of you might be asking yourself, am I at the wall? Is that what's happening to me right now? How do we let our hearts engage with God after grief and pain wreak havoc in our lives? You know what, I was on my way to work um, not that long ago, and I witnessed an accident. I actually sat there and watched it happen. I was in the turn lane, the light had just turned green, and the car in front of me started to go. But out of the corner of my eye, I saw a car speeding through the intersection, and I knew a crash was imminent. It happened so fast. The car rammed into the side of the truck, throwing it off the road, spinning it 180 degrees until it cleared the entire intersection and landed in the trees on the other side of the road. I rushed over to the truck, afraid of what I was going to find. And in the truck sat a friend of mine. He was disoriented. He knew who he was. He actually knew who I was in that moment, but he couldn't figure out why I was there, and he had no idea where he was and what had just happened to him. 
How many of us feel like this? Disoriented, confused, and shocked by what we're experiencing in life. Life has just crashed through the intersection and right into us. And if we're lucky, we know who we are, but not why we're here, and we have no idea what just happened to us. Somewhere in the story of our lives, our hearts have been damaged. They've been deadened, bored, ignored, restricted, and now they barely survive. Life has been cruel to our hearts. Writer John Eldridge says this, he said, The story of your life is the story of a long and brutal assault on your heart by the one who knows what you could be and fears it. We have an enemy, and he knows how vital our hearts are, so all of his forces are fixed on his destruction. If he can deaden our hearts, then he can cripple the plan of God. By taking our hearts out, the enemy takes you out, and you, beloved, are essential to the story God is writing in this world. Your heart matters to God. Did you know that since the beginning of time, God's people have always reminded each other that God would give us a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart of flesh, not stone, a heart joined to the life of Christ, a heart enlightened to know the deep mysteries of God. Jesus called it a good and noble heart. Here's the promise. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so here's what I mean when I'm referring to heart. Your heart is where you do your deepest thinking. It's where your true beliefs dwell. Your heart is everything you love that makes life worth living. Your heart gives you courage to try new things and to push back on things when they're not right. Your heart is where your deepest emotions come from. Have you ever failed because your heart's not in it? That's what I'm talking about. Your heart is essential to life. Our hearts are who we are when we're not disoriented and in shock and hung up by life's pain or bored with the monotony of it. God cares about your heart. He says it's a good heart when fashioned after his own. And he gave it to us so we would have what we need to win this life. To win, not just survive. I bet your family knows your true heart. They've seen glimpses of it. Uh, My dad is obsessed with Disney World, and they couldn't afford to take us as kids. So as adults, they packed up the six of us, and we boarded a plane to Florida on a whirlwind week of adventure. Um, I had never flown before, and I was the youngest. I was 19 or 20 at that time. And we were in Epcot Center, in in an English pub in Epcot Center. And my dad ordered a round of beers for everyone, including me. I'll never forget it. It was the day the baby of the family became an adult in everybody's eyes. So as an adult, I might have helped myself the rest of the week. 
Julie Five Beers is a name I haven't been able to shake in the past 20 years. It's not something that comes out a lot, but when the situation calls for action and courage and someone to go against the status quo, this is the name my siblings especially call for, Julie Five Beers. It's like a dare, a taunt. They're trying to elicit a response from me. Why? Because they're calling for heart. They want to see it. It's the part of my personality they want to experience. They don't want the goody-two-shoes baby of the family. My siblings are delighted when my true self comes out because it gives them permission for their true selves to come out. It validates and encourages their heart. Your true heart is illustrated in the stories and examples that come out at the holidays, the ones that shock your mom because they're so awesome. This shows you a side of yourself that's fully alive, and God wants you fully alive. God wants you fully alive, to be fully engaged, living out of the heart of flesh he's given you. He doesn't want you disoriented and unaware and in shock by what life throws at you. He doesn't want you on the side of the road, in the trees, disoriented, confused, brokenhearted, wounded, and weak. Jesus describes the paradigm we exist in. He says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus wants our hearts fully alive, but we have an enemy seeking to kill, steal, and destroy us. But we also have a God who promises his life, an abundant life. This is the reality of life. We have an enemy who wants to take life, and we have a God who wants to give it. And the wall is the battle, and where we fight for that life, and where we fight for our hearts. And so let me tell you some of the things that I've been learning as I fight for my heart at the wall. I've learned to quit believing lies. I've started to ask God for eyes to see myself as he sees me. And then I learned from others how to be close with him. So I quit, I ask, and I learn. That's it. And as I look back on my life, these are the things that have made the most difference and continue to make a difference. And so I hope you're thinking, I could do that. In junior high, someone once told me I had a big nose, and I believed him. And so now that I've admitted this to you, I'm all worried about those of you on the outlie here, that you're not going to be able to focus because all you're going to be able to see for the rest of our time together is my big nose and this hump right here. Funny how a suggestion of a 13-year-old has plagued me for decades. Oh, and get this. I have a new office mate, and this week she apologized to me for yawning loudly. What? I didn't even notice, but someone once told her that she yawns loudly, and so now she apologizes for it. The enemy, whose objective, remember, is to steal, kill, and destroy, will assault you, but it won't be obvious. He'll start suggesting things, ridiculous things, tossing them out like little hand grenades waiting for them in the places that they hit. 
He starts suggesting and attacking our weaknesses and our trauma points and our insecurities, looking for the places where we start buying into his lies. And then once he gets us, he gets us in the same spot over and over and over again. For me, it's this feeling of inadequacy. After our miscarriage, his assault on me wasn't, hey, God caused this. I wasn't going to believe that lie. But he did attack my feelings of inadequacy because I was at the wall of my spiritual journey and I bought it hook, line, and sinker. And so this is what it sounds like in my head. You're a fraud. Do you really love Jesus? How can you teach? You're not even reading the Bible right now. Why are you teaching your daughter to pray? You're not praying. You're a big fake and phony. Everyone's going to see right through you. And don't think that these things weren't on a loop in my head this morning, especially during worship. Here's my point. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, so do not let him. Don't believe his lies. I was a speaker at a women's conference, And uh, I shared a deeply personal and painful story. And immediately after the session, a lady made a beeline right towards me. She came up to me and she informed me that my story was trivial and it wasn't worth sharing. And then she commented that I really didn't know what real pain and suffering was. And so I squared up my shoulders. I looked her straight in the eye and I walked away. I had the wisdom in that moment to know that that comment wasn't about me. It came from a place of her deep pain. But I also knew that if I stayed there, tried to reason with her, tried to probe into her pain, that would have ended with an assault on my heart. And I couldn't afford that. I had two more sessions to teach. The enemy was attacking my weak point, my feelings of inadequacy. But this time, I chose not to believe his lies. Again, here's my point. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So do not let him. The writer of Proverbs puts it like this. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So my best defense for this is to remember your heart and to protect it at all cost. Walk away. Let these things roll right off you. And so just so you know what I'm talking about, here's what it might sound like in your head. You'll never amount to anything. No one in our family goes to college. Who do you think you are? You are a terrible wife, mother, brother, sister, husband. You are terrible at taking care of your family. You should try harder. Be alert. Pay attention so you can recognize when you're being lied to. Here's a tip. If you don't hear me say anything else today, hear me say this. The Spirit of God does not speak condemnation and shame to you. Even when he convicts, he is gentle and kind. 
So be alert, pay attention, and recognize when you're being lied to. So the best way I found to do this is to, by asking God for eyes to see myself as he sees me. Because this always makes the lies apparent. So ask God for eyes to see yourself as he sees you. John, a close friend of Jesus, wrote this. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Ask God for eyes to see yourself as he sees you so your heart will be confident before him. Here's two simple questions I ask. God, who am I? What do you think of me? I started praying these things in my 20s. I told you I, I struggle with insecurity, especially between me and God. Started young. And one morning, in this very journal entry, I started asking something similar, and I wrote these things down on this piece of paper. And I was at a conference in Chicago at the time. And so when I got to the morning session, my friends who I was there with came running up to me with a card in their hand. It had been placed on the bulletin board by the prayer team who was praying over the people at this conference. And it had my name on it, and this is what the card said. Julie, Romans 12.2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I feel like God delights in your uniqueness. There is no one like you. When you are operating the way God designed you, there is freedom. There is no need to live inside a box. I see you dropkick in the box. Blessings. Love, Amy. I never met Amy. I don't know her. But she wrote down the answers to the questions I had asked in my journal that very moment. God who am I? And what do you think of me? These things are both dated March 9th, 2004. And let me tell you, I keep this card in my desk at home and I pull it out. When I'm discouraged, I read it. When I'm defeated and believing lies, I believe it. Julie, you are unique and God delights in you. And he designed you to operate in freedom. And you can do this by renewing your mind and knowing what God's will for you is, but you cannot be molded into what the world wants of you. And for this, you need heart. When is the last time you asked God, who am I? When is the last time you asked God, what do you think of me? Ask God for eyes to see. Not what everyone else thinks of you, not what the naysayers think of you, not even what you think of you. Ask God for eyes to see yourself as he sees you. The last thing I know is that we cannot do this alone. I learned from others how to be close with God. I learned from others how to be close with God. 
Sometimes a lot of the questions I get is, how do you read the Bible? How do you hear God's voice? How do you pray? And these are all important questions. And I could give you a whole list of things to do and try. And you'd look at the list and be defeated before you began. You'd see it and go, I can't do that. Thinking deeply about this, the way I've learned these things is by seeing others do it. But not just observing, participating with them through friendship. Here's the point. Get alongside those who walk with God and learn how. How many of us randomly meet someone and become good friends? I mean, it happens. My brother and sister-in-law travel with a group of people they met on a beach in Jamaica. But more than likely, friendships develop through mutual friends who help the friendship along. The same is true with God. Friends can help you introduce you to God and help you nurture that relationship. I've learned a lot about God through friendships with other people. Do you know how I learned how to pray? I learned how to pray in the living room of a very tiny, unassuming, middle-aged woman. I was actually there for a Bible study. She invited us into her home my junior year in high school for a Bible study. But what I learned was, was how to pray, how to talk to God, how to listen for his voice, how to expect answers. I learned how to expect that he would move on our behalf. I would have never learned that one by myself. Do you know how I learned how to read the Bible? Starbucks. I learned at Starbucks. Right in the midst of a group of ragtag random people, they, they modeled it. Everyone did it differently. There was no right or wrong way to do it. But through the course of our time together, my confidence with the Bible grew and so did my desire. I would have never learned that one by myself. Do you know how I learned how to hear God's voice and see him moving in this world? I learned through listening to friends share their stories. I started recognizing how he was moving in their lives, and then I began to recognize it in my own life. I would have never learned that one by myself. John declares, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. A testimony is just an old-fashioned word for story. We need Jesus. We're defeated without him, but it's also in sharing our stories and our lives that we live in the full and abundant life that Jesus promises to us. We need each other. We need each other to help carry the load, to help us over the wall, to fight for our hearts when we cannot do it for ourselves. We need each other to help encourage and spur intimacy with God. Here's my point. Learn from others how to have a close relationship with God. Are you thinking, I could do that. You have an enemy against you. You have a God who's for you. And if you are at the wall in a battle today, know I'm right here fighting with you. Let's pray. Jesus, I know that there are some people in this room fighting a battle. God, they're defeated. They're listening to lies from the enemy, telling them to quit and to give up. God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, right now in this moment, I pray that you give them eyes to see themselves as you see them. 
Help make the lies apparent. Give them a way to escape and get around them. God, thanks for loving us and calling us your own dear children. Thanks for giving us a new heart, a heart of flesh, one that has the power to live a full and abundant life that you promised. And God, in closing, I am just going to pray a priestly blessing over your people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.